Hi, everybody. Welcome to the August 30th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get started with a quick take on the recent report by the Reason Foundation ranking Colorado highways 36th in the nation and its rural highways 48th. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, I knew the highways in Colorado weren't doing well, but 48th in the nation for our rural highways, does not think it's going to spur any action? It's going to spur a lot of bumping along, which I certainly did as I came right down from Wyoming and hit Colorado this weekend and started bumping. We've got to do something with our roads soon, and I would also argue for some of our city roads, but it's going to take some real movement on on the side of the legislature. Erica Meltzer, uh, Bureau Chief at uh, Chalkbeat Colorado, joins us. Thank you so much for being here. Erica, this seems like it's going to exacerbate what is already a pretty big divide between the urban and rural areas of Colorado. This can't be good news for folks who are trying to you know, get things to get along between those two groups. Uh, I think that's absolutely correct. And as someone who covers education issues, I talk to a lot of people who are concerned about school funding, but there's no doubt that our roads are long overdue for... Uh, some more investment, and I think it's also going heighten, to heighten that tension in the legislature between uh, education and transportation, which seem to go head-to-head every year. Michael Fields, Executive Director of Colorado Rising Action, joins us. Great to have you back. Uh, Michael, voters said no to two big transportation funding ideas last year. I don't know if that told the legislature they can kind of let it pass, or when you see something like this, maybe it becomes more of an issue. Where do you think it ranks in importance for legislators? Well, and legislators, not very high, but for voters, it still is the number one polling issue across demographics, across the state. Um, You know, here on the front range, we have our issues, and we all know that, but rural Colorado is in much worse shape. Um, If you remember a couple years ago, the hospital provider fee passed. It was actually called the sustainability of rural Colorado. It was supposed to help schools, hospitals, and roads in rural Colorado. So three years later, uh, we're hoping some of that money finally gets to, to help out those rural roads. And join us for our first time on the panel, Marie Aberger, uh, founder of Be Clear, also uh, spent time part of the press team in the Obama White House. It's great to have you on Colorado Inside Out. Thanks for joining us. Uh, wrap it up for us. What do you think uh, about seeing these rankings that think it's going to spur any action? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I actually moved to Colorado from the state that ranked worst on this list. There's uh, one that gets me. <laughs> we have the most structurally deficient bridges in the country. So Colorado's still a ways away from that, but we got to remember it's time to act now. We need a bold investment. And what I want to do is make sure we're not just talking about roads and bridges, but we're talking about buses and trains. This is time to make investment in something that can really tackle our carbon emissions and just make the state a better place to get around. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has endorsed John Hickenlooper, angering many in the party, including the six women candidates running against him in the primary. Meanwhile, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett failed to qualify for the next presidential primary debate that will be going on later in September. Patty, the DSCC is not the final arbiter of who's going to win a primary, but that's a pretty big voice to have made an endorsement. Frankly, this is in the primary. There's over a dozen folks. What do you think that has, uh, what kind of effect that's going to have in the primary? Probably not the effect it wanted to have. When they, you were probably taping last week right when that announcement came out that the DSCC was endorsing Hickenlooper over the other 12 Democratic candidates. Didn't do Hickenlooper any favors because it immediately got the backs up of the candidates who, some of them have been running for over a year now and didn't appreciate that the national committee bigfooted their way in. Colorado doesn't appreciate outside 
outside interference, and this is certainly one of them. It's ironic that Hickenlooper left a national race to run for Senate. He was certainly encouraged by Schumer and others. But Colorado likes to make their own decisions. They don't want Washington telling them what to do. So Hickenlooper's going to have to work some to make it look like he is independent of the big people in Washington, where he's never been, unlike Bennett, who um, is not going to be in the debate, but probably will go along for a few more months, I think, as a candidate. Erica, what do you think about that? Let's start with Bennett. Uh, He's not going to be in this next debate. And frankly, the debate really shrinks. You go from two 10-person debates to just one. Uh, Well, there's probably a few outliers there. You're getting really just the big names head-to-head. Does Bennett need that exposure to fuel the next few months? Oh, absolutely. I recall with the first couple rounds of debates, watching this huge field and seeing some of the lesser candidates from other states and thinking, who the heck is that guy? And realizing that the Colorado candidates that we've been familiar with for years, someone in some other state is looking at that stage saying, who the heck is that guy? (laughs) Um, So if he can't get that national exposure through the debates, I think it's going to be a real struggle. I think you come with a great ad campaign for Michael Bennett. Who the heck is that guy? (laughs) Let me tell you who the heck I am. I I don't know. If that works, remember, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Michael, uh, you have uh, both Bennett, uh, not really on life support, but people are still wondering, has he dropped out yet? And then you have Hickenlooper, who is probably going to be a voice of moderation uh, on that Democratic primary, but I don't know if that's an advantage, at least in the primary stage here in Colorado. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this kind of fighting on the Democratic side here in Colorado rarely happens, uh, and it's come very harsh very early. Uh, Representative or Senator Angela Williams started this off by saying that Hickenlooper doesn't represent progressive values of women and minorities uh, very well. Um, you have the DSCC blocking vendors to uh, people like uh, Andrew Romanoff's campaign. Uh, this is a very aggressive uh, move by the, the DSCC. Um, and I think, as Patty said, it's going to backfire uh, in a lot of ways. But you even have Hickenlooper's former uh, consultant calling these uh, vanity projects that these other people have. Uh, there's going to be big infighting. And, and while you know some of the progressives, the people who want a Green New Deal, that want to end private insurance, uh, aren't very happy with Hickenlooper, I don't think Hickenlooper's moderate. Um, he's a guy who said most of the Green New Deal is, is good. He's pushed for 10 tax increases uh, as mayor and governor. Uh, he wants a public option. I mean, these are still things that are, are a little bit to the left of where Colorado voters are. And so this is going to be, we're, we're one week into this, and there's 43 weeks left in the primary. Uh, so yeah, it, it rarely happens on the Democratic side, but but I'm, I'm smiling about it. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that you would enjoy it. Uh, uh, Marie, Michael makes a good point. The circular firing squad of a primary is usually the Colorado Republicans' trademark, uh, but they are being spared that this year up, up until 2020. It seems the Democrats are taking that script. You have uh, Governor Hickenlooper, who seems to have a resume that would do pretty well in the general. So the name recognition, uh, I think Michael makes a good point, maybe not officially moderate, but probably looks more moderate against some of the other issues. But you've got to get through the primary first. No one's backing down. I like Kyle Clark's point. No one's bending the knee uh, just because Hickenlooper got into the race. How do you see it playing out? Does Hickenlooper need to go a little bit further left to pull off a primary win in Colorado? You know, I think this is actually really exciting. And I think the biggest thing is that we let this primary play out. You know, traditionally, when someone like Kickenlooper got in, you would expect everyone to step aside 
and I'm glad that we're not doing that here because we have a highly qualified, brilliant, diverse bench of people who really want this job. These aren't vanity projects. We have two candidates in Mike Johnson and Dan Baer who've raised more than a million dollars. They're proving they can do this. You know, when we talk about diversity, again, this record number of women, um, Dan Baer could be the first openly gay man to be in the U.S. Senate. If Democrat voters, we're clear we want to get rid of Senator Gardner. That's clear. Let's have some fun and figure out who the right person is to take him on. <laughs> I think it's going to be fun to check out next May to see how much fun the candidates are having, but I think you raise a good point. Denver parents and teachers are steaming this week for a variety of reasons. Some classroom temperatures have hit over 90 degrees in past days at 60 Denver public schools that do not currently have air conditioning. Denver Public Schools estimate it would cost $200 million, that's, that's million with an M, to install AC in those schools. Erica, you are Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado, so you know this inside and out. What are the issues around this that we need to know? Well, this has been an issue for years, and what it really comes down to is we have a lot of older buildings. Uh, Denver voters approved bond money in 2012 and again in 2016 to do uh, cooling projects in schools. They've put AC in uh, 19 schools, but there's still 60 without it. And um, we have teachers reporting inside temperatures in the high 80s and low 90s, kids passing out, kids with bloody noses, um, not exactly a great learning environment. Um, but as you said, the price tag to, uh, to get all of these schools is quite high, Then they may ask voters for some more money in 2020. Michael, education funding overall, whether it be capital or teacher pay or anything in the middle, is always tricky. And we talked about before the show, that, that, that pie of education funding, there's a lot of folks with sharp knives wanting their piece. Uh, this is a big issue, but there's a lot of different angles to it between calendar and uh, you know, which schools are older and which populations are being affected that way. How do you think this bears out for DPS? Well, I think they need to fix it and make an adjustment here. Um, as a former teacher, I know that kids have a hard time learning if it's 90 degrees in that room. It's hard enough to get them to learn anyway, but when the temperature's like that, uh, it's not happening. But I wanted to see if anybody wanted to bet me that the central office at DPS probably has well, uh, has air conditioning that works pretty well. Um, so I think the kids deserve to, to have this. You know, I uh, worked at a charter school that had some of the lowest funding in the state, and we had air conditioning. We made it a priority uh, to do it. And I think to your point, education funding, people want it in the classroom, and they want it to go to teachers. And here in Colorado, only 54% of the money we spend on education goes to instruction. Next door in Nebraska, it's 65%. So that's a lot of money there that is going to administration, going to our pension fund. Uh, you know, healthcare costs are high across the country, but we need to find ways to get this to benefit students and benefit teachers with the money that we currently have. Maria, as you look at this and the variety of folks involved, and again, it's being a complicated issue, is it something that the administration needs to go to the voters immediately? Do they need to work within their own system? It, do they need to turn off their own AC at the, at the central administration building to, uh, in, a, in a point of unity? Uh, where, where should DPS administration go first? Yeah, I wish there was an obvious answer. There's an obvious problem that kids cannot be in these classrooms. If it was 90 degrees in these, this studio, I don't think a single one of us could give you an answer. So how can we expect kids to be in a classroom learning when temperatures are like that? So obvious problem, we know they can't be there. I wish there was an obvious solution. $200 million is a lot of money. We could do a lot of, with that in our schools. I think it's up to our leaders to put together a couple solutions and maybe take it to voters and say, which one do you like best? Patty, you've known uh, DPS for a long time. Where do you think they're going to go with this? 
Maybe they need to move schools back, opening a little later, which is one of the reasons you didn't need to use air conditioning when school started after Labor Day. Uh, smoke more, more pot, buy more pot, because some of that money goes <laughs> to the construction budgets. And if Denver applies, and Denver hasn't applied for all the money it could have from the state, but that is just a drop in the bucket. I think it makes more sense for DPS to really look at their budget, look at options, before going again to the voters on this one. After voting down the standard contract renewals with Geo Group and Core Civic, the Denver City Council has agreed to short-term contracts with the for-profit corporations. The move will give the city, the, the city government one year to develop new plans for halfway house operations. Michael, we were talking about this last week because uh, just the whole idea of halfway houses and their role within the criminal justice system, people, unless they have somebody connected to it, don't usually know a whole lot about it or they know they may not want it next to their house, their apartment. But it sounds like we're going to be able to learn a lot more about halfway houses and their value in Denver. Uh, Did the Denver City Council do the right thing about at least giving themselves some more time to handle this issue? Yeah, I think they had to. Um, you know, they, they went out ahead of this and said, uh, we're going to shut this down. And there was a problem. Are these people all going to go back to prison? What is going to happen with these people? Um, and then they had to fix it somehow when it was actually getting to that point. Uh, I think they're, they're, Denver City Council is playing politics without a real solution. And then when the real impacts come, let's try to fix it really quick. Um, I think you have to look at it. It's like the immigration detention centers is one issue. The halfway houses is a completely different issue. Um, and, and with these quick decisions, and you saw this, this week with the you know this impacts Colorado in general you have this impacts other communities if they shut down these halfway houses they go to other other people's communities too and so I think you know the the city council on a lot of these issues this the carbon tax other things they have to think things through before making these these decisions and then having to backtrack some of them or change things and so I'm looking Denver City Council is a very interesting place right now uh, and I think for a lot of reasons and so we'll see how this one plays out. Uh, Marie, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, five new faces in the Denver City Council took over, and this was one of the, the biggest effects those new faces had because this is spo- the, the, the re-sign up on this contract was supposed to be, the renewal of this contract was supposed to be just a fait accompli. It was going to be a slam dunk. Everything changed that one evening. Are we looking at more, uh, at the very least, uh, exciting news coming out of the Denver City Council because of the new faces involved? Absolutely. I think we're going to see some different things. And personally, I support the effort to do a deep dive into these for-profit contracts and these private vendors that are getting millions of dollars and known to be associated with some pretty bad human rights abuses and detention centers. But what I don't support is not taking a thoughtful, long-term, transparent approach, especially when we're dealing with one of the most vulnerable populations in Colorado. This is where good government doesn't just mean doing the bold, impulsive move. It means stepping back, laying out a thoughtful plan to make sure there's no disruption of care for these folks. Penny, there's the the strong mayor form of government. That's not a necessarily compliment for Mayor Hancock. It's just the way it's structured with a city council and the mayor and who gets to have the final say on things like budget, things like that. Uh, Do you see uh, Mayor Hancock stepping in a little bit more often to remind the council of that uh, official government format setup? Would have been nice if he'd done that last year in August when they approved the DIA contract with Mm -hmm. Peruvial. So uh, with the Great Hall thing. So that's another classic of moving way too fast. In this case, absolutely, they moved too quickly. And when you look at the Department of Corrections and the people who've been in charge of it in recent years, including Dean Williams, we have an interview with him today. These are really thoughtful people who are trying to think about how to treat people correctly in prison, but then also to work on recidivism. And how can you help people, once they've served their time, 
get the tools they need to get out. And for that, usually you need a really good halfway house experience, which these people are not getting, and they certainly were not going to get if all of a sudden everything was shut down and they had to go back to prison. So it's one the city really owes a lengthy and smart response. Erica, do you think we're going to get that, that lengthy and smart response? I mean, it, it, the Denver City Council still has, now that they've signed these short-term contracts, some time to think this out. Is there room for, for some public debate about halfway houses in, in Denver? I certainly would hope there would be room for some public debate, but I, I, what I took away from this is just how entwined and embedded these systems are um, with the for-profit corrections or all sorts of other things that have been um, privatized or contracted out, and just in our personal lives, if we want to, if we don't like how a company is acting, and we want to pull our money, and then it turns out they own 15 other things that maybe we're not willing to pull our money from, I, I think we're seeing that play out in a governmental sense that affects a lot more people. During the May shooting at the STEM school in Highlands Ranch, an on-duty private guard shot and wounded an uninvolved student while accidentally firing at a responding sheriff's deputy. The Colorado Sun learned this week that the school forbids guards to carry guns on school property and did not know the guard was armed. Uh, Marie, uh, how we're handling violence in schools, whether it be armed guards in schools or um, private security or arming teachers, it's, the, the conversation's only going to grow. But from what we learned this week, what do you think that adds or detracts from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, did you see yesterday's front page of the Denver Post? It was a story of students being trained to tackle an active shooter. I had it just sitting on my counter all day, wondering what if it was like when I was in school and I was taught to tackle an active shooter. I just, I can't process that. And I think our takeaway from all of this should be the only thing we should be tackling is common sense gun legislation. Guns don't belong in schools, not anywhere. To anyone who thinks putting guns in the hands of civilians at school is gonna solve the problem, I think this showed us it won't. Let's leave emergency response to our emergency officials, and let's get you know our Senator Cory Gardner to join up with other Republicans in the Senator and finally get some gun legislation done. Patty, what do you think about the impact of the events of what's going on in Douglas County? Uh, there's been issues between the charter school and the, the, the district said, well, if you're going to arm teachers, you can't be a charter school, then they're going to leave the district, and uh, a lot of different angles to this. Is that going to lead to more con conversations in other districts that with even more students? Douglas County's, uh, the, 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 there's plenty of students there, but Jefferson County, Denver Public Schools, there's a lot of big districts around there that have yet to have these kind of debates. I don't think there is a school district in Colorado that isn't thinking about this, given what's happened. And uh, kudos to Jesse Paul from Colorado Sun, who did a great job getting this information out there. And we do have to look to national. What is going to happen? Let's remember the last two big shootings, and sadly we know there will be more. They weren't in schools. Dayton, El Paso, those were not school shootings. Those were shootings we were supposed to get such response from out of D.C. with immediately. And, of course, now we have Trump backing off maybe on supporting red flag legislation. We've got Congress coming back next early next month, and we'll see if anyone is really serious about doing something. But I think the will is there now for more, back, more on background checks, more on red flag legislation. We've had David Copel at this table has even been advising Congress. So we'll see if we're able to come up with some common sense. But it can't be piecemeal because, as we've discovered with all these shootings, there's so many different factors involved. Erica, again, with your work at Chalkbeat, Colorado, what, what are some of the background issues with schools and the districts and all the conversations back and forth that we need to know about this issue? 
Well, there's a lot of debate right now. There's a, a interim committee that's been convened to try and work on school safety issues, and it's covering a lot of issues. It's actually steering clear of the gun issue largely and talking about threat assessment and um, sharing information and better mental health resources. And I think, unfortunately, at the end of the day, we don't actually, I think everyone would like to know, like, this is the thing we're going to do, and this is what's going to make our schools safe. And we don't, we don't really know. We don't have, if it's arming teachers, there's potential for a lot of things to go wrong. If, if no one's armed and there's a slow emergency response, there's, that's not good either. No one really knows what the thing is. I do think something to keep in mind is that these events still are relatively rare and, and that in many, by many metrics our schools are actually safer today than they have been in decades. Michael, what do you think this is going to do? I mean, A, it's, it's a difficult uh, challenge for if there were no politics involved. But we live in a very political society, and we're about to come into a very political year in 2020. Do you see any real action on the horizon on any side of this that, that, that can provide any sort of uh, change? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, all these shootings come up, and then there's talk, and then there's not, and then back and forth. Um, I don't know if anything actually comes of it. I think you have to look at each situation and figure out what happened here, what could have gone better, what went well. And I think in this case, if, if the guard wasn't supposed to have a gun, he shouldn't have had a gun uh, on, on one hand. But he did stop one of the shooters and then fired, and it went through several walls and, and hit a kid. I think there has to be talk about if you're going to have armed security guards in an area um, what kind of bullets are they using that can go through multiple walls in order to hit somebody in a school situation? So I think there's like practical things that you can look at it and say, look, this was a good thing. The sh- one of the shooters was stopped by this. Then a kid got injured. That is, that is horrible. Um, it has to be a learning experience in a lot of ways. And so I'm somebody who I, I want trained security guards that, that are armed to protect our kids, um, but they have to do it the right way. And so I think this is an, an ongoing discussion, but we can learn from each one of these circumstances. Well, not only do you have a lot of uh, great new faces at the panel this week, but we've also got into rarefied air at the Colorado Institute out table. We actually have time for a quick fifth topic. This hasn't happened, I think, Patty, for, for I don't know how many years. But uh, we just saw the headline today with the uh, ballot issue. It's going to be on the 2020 ballot with the national going against what the, the legislature passed with the national popular vote. They, we would be joining to that compact. And this ballot issue would be the first time that it goes against something the legislature passed since 19. 19- so a very quick round, just your, your odds of where this is going to go right now. Where do you think, uh, how, how are Colorado voters going to react about getting out of the National Popular Vote Compact? Patty, what do you think? Coloradans like to be independent. I don't think they'll like having their vote taken away from them, and I think they'll opt out. Erica? I have no idea. I'm going to pass on this one. <laughs> you don't want to make some, some random guess on an idea that's only going to be uh, decided a year and a half from now? You know, I think... Th- I think people are, I don't know, what I don't know is if, are people going to try and apply a, an abstract principle that they think is the, the fair and just thing? Or are they going to take their partisan preferences and try and game the system? What's, what's going to be better for my side? Yeah. Michael, what do you think? How's it going to go? Well, I think looking at the signatures, 227,000, 100,000 of those uh, were volunteer signatures. I think there's a lot, the base uh, on the right and I think unaffiliated voters will go for it. So I think it, it, uh, it passes uh, for sure. Maria, a long time before it actually goes to the vote, what do you think? Look, I think the only system that makes sense is that the person who gets the most votes gets the votes. And as someone who works in communications, there's nothing easier to clear, uh, more easy to communicate than that. So I think voters will want their votes to go to the person with the most votes. 
I imagine we have plenty of time to debate and <laughs> talk about this in the future. It's time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Miss Calhoun, please start us off. Well, return with me to 1995 when Fred Kummer got $25 million from the Denver Urban Renewal Authority to rebuild a hotel downtown and also permission to knock down the IMPay hyperbolic paraboloid. In this year when everyone's talking about historic designation for things like Tom's Diner, remember we lost an IMPay building. And as consolation prize, we got the dancing ballerinas, not the dancing aliens on the spear, but the dancing ballerinas downtown, which are now dancing down to the Santa Fe Arts District, donated by Sheraton. That's good. Still bad that we don't have that pay. <laughs> Erica. I'm going to go with elected officials who use the hashtag fake news at reporters. Uh, this week it happened to be CU Regent uh, Heidi Ganahl, but I've heard it from the Boulder City Council. I've heard it from the left. I've heard it from the right. If you have an issue with the story, we're certainly not above criticism, but you know, take issue with the story. Don't just throw that term around when the press is under attack from so many fronts. I am very excited when that, that term can just find its, its last minute of fame and be done. Michael. It's a big travel weekend, so I'm going back to city council and DIA, uh, and there's more articles coming out about how this process is, is a mess, uh, trying to fix the, the issues there. And you have you know, the mayor's office and city council trying to take more oversight, et cetera. Um, but I think we'd be better off just treating it like a jury, just take 12 random Denver people and having them oversee this project. It would probably go better. Marie, what's your disgrace of the week? I'm going to go with something that I don't think is getting enough attention, which is the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act, which... The House uh, passed in April, and it's just been sitting with our U.S. Senate uh, for months now. They're on vacation. I think they should come back and put in these important protections for women. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? Returning to Labor Day weekend with a lot of great events out there, including Taste of Colorado, which is free, and the State Fair, which is a great institution in Pueblo, a town that can use some visits. Erica? Um, we write a lot about problems in education, but I just want to give a shout-out to all the teachers that are working really hard and doing great work for our kids in the classroom. Here, here. Michael. Uh, tonight's the Rocky Mountain Showdown between CSU and CU, and uh, Coach Mel Tucker's first game uh, as a head coach at CU. So wanted to wish him the best, and go Buffs. I, I wish I could join you. have got a Buff in the family, a Ram in the family. Go Regis Rangers. Uh, Marie. Well, in honor of Women's Equality Week, which was this week, I want to give a shout-out to Rep. Brittany Peterson, who's going to be the first Colorado lawmaker who will give birth during legislative session. I think we need to see a lot more of that. This should become the norm. Women of all ages should be, you know, running our governments. And on that note, I also, also think I should give a shout-out to a panel that has three women on it. That's pretty cool. So let's make that the norm, too. I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with one of our smarter episodes ever. <laughs> that is indeed all the time we have this episode of Colorado Insight. Before we go, let me remind you that we are just finishing up our August Pledge Drive. So if you enjoy this show, when you become a member of CPT12, you help make it happen. So we hope you take a chance to whether there's a whole lot of different shows. And if you're missing your favorite shows because we're in Pledge, I totally understand that. But when you become a member of CPT12, you can uh, also get the benefit of Passport, which unlocks literally thousands of episodes. So you could watch it for you, you could binge on Passport for weekends a lot longer than you could on anything, anything else you could in a much healthier fashion, frankly. Uh, and enjoy all of your favorites. So uh, if you enjoy that, if you're missing that, give us a try. Go to cpt12.org, become a member, and you can enjoy Passport and know that your funds are helping programs just like this talk about the issues that matter to you in your community. For everybody here at Colorado Inside Out and at CPT12, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you all have a great Labor Day holiday. Have a great night. Good night.